Hello, this is Chris Gregory calling. Thanks a lot for uh, calling in. Uh, so I was, I was just going to start with uh, you just giving your background on uh, how you got involved in the Vietnam War and why you got involved in philosophy afterwards. Sure. Uh, I, in 1964, actually 1963, the end of 1963, I found myself a 17-year-old boy in uh, suburban New Jersey, uh, quite unhappy and unproductive, and I decided to skip high school and uh, join the service. I went down, signed up, and uh, in April, they uh, they took me. Uh, I, I signed up to the Air Force for four years. Vietnam was not a was not a you know there was some advisors stationed there, but there was I think had there been I don't think there'd been casualties of any kind, and I didn't really know much anything about it. Kennedy had given a speech on the subject, but he actually was killed in November, and he gave a, gave a speech sometime in the in the fall before he was killed, or summer before he was killed, and I joined up in December, so it wasn't. Vietnam was not on my mind when I joined. I became an Air Force uh, medic. They trained me to be a medic. And uh, I worked in hospitals. And, and then I went to uh, work in a hospital in Florida. And then I was selected to become a air evacuation medic, which was better pay and quicker promotions. And so I took that. I went to get retrained for that. And uh, uh, Vietnam, this was 1966, and things were starting to heat up a bit. And so... In 1967, uh, I was sent to Vietnam as a as a air evacuation medic. I had been uh, jockeying patients in airplanes all over the United States for a year, year or so, a year and a half before that, and uh, had, this was very well familiar with the injuries that people had were coming back with. So, at the time of the Tet Offensive, just prior to the Tet Offensive, I got word to that I had to go further west until I got to uh, Vietnam uh, because there were so many casualties being evacuated that everybody had to move closer to the engagement. So uh, that's what I did. I worked on large planes, C-141s, which were uh, could carry as many as 200, 250 patients at a time. Half were in in uh, leaders lying down, you know, in the stretchers, and half were sitting up. So uh, uh, I took them various places, from various spots in Vietnam to various other places, from Cameron Bay, Tonsonut, and uh, Da Nang, to uh, the Philippines, to Hawaii, to Alaska, uh, to Japan, uh, uh, for, for, you know, six months or so four months or so, and I rarely spent more than a few days in Vietnam prior to my being uh, shipped out with another load of patients. So uh, my time there was, uh, time in Vietnam was not, uh, my experience in Vietnam was not, I don't think, the standard experience in being in danger, being in combat, but was I did see some tracers, and I did get. I, I did. I have. I was frightened at times, but I was never in danger that would be equivalent to someone in active combat. Uh, I my experience was a trauma of these fellows who I had to uh, take care of while they were being transported, and uh, some of the injuries, especially when the Tet Offensive was going 
full blast were were acute injuries. They had still, you know, you could smoke, still smoke gunpowder, and they still had their uniforms on, even though they had a, you know, lost a limb or they had or they had a bullet in them or they had been burned or something. They were they had been triaged, but they hadn't really and and stabilized, but they hadn't. They were still quite hurt, and they were these injuries were fresh. So I saw a lot of that, and I saw some people who were very, very badly hurt. And uh, I spent a lot of time going back and forth, and, you know, uh, the transit gives you a lot of time to think. And when we went over on these 141s, we went to Vietnam, sometimes we went commercially, more often we went on the 141s, they would be stacked full of uh, coffins, and we'd take the coffins over and bring the soldiers back. We didn't bring coffins, they would came on another uh, plane that was exclusively for coffins. So, uh, you know, I saw just a lot of hurt, badly, badly hurt fellows for a long time. Boys, really. Most of the people who were hurt were between 17 and 24, like young men, boys. And uh, it affected me more than I realized. I mean, you know, I was professional, so I was trained to treat these fellows, and I, that's what I did, and I didn't think about the implications of, I certainly didn't think about the moral implications, I thought about the implications of, were they, did they have enough fluids in them, were they gonna, were they gonna get sicker on my watch, or were they, or was I gonna be able to make it, get them to where they needed to go safely and in one piece, and so that was my, my focus, and I became pretty good at it, but uh, later when I, Got out of the service. I decided I want. I was not done uh, with intellectual pursuits, and I managed to get myself accepted to Brandeis University, which had a terrific philosophy department at the time. And so you were, you were a high school grad. You were a high school graduate when you. No, I dropped out of high school. I got a GED in Mississippi uh, when good. I was stationed there for a few months. How about your and, family in New Jersey? Were you from an educated background or? Yes, my father was a lawyer. Oh, my mother good. was a high school, but I was, you know, we were. I was from an educated background, and I, they, my parents had ambitions, but I had an intellectual ambitions of my own, you know. <laughs> to, from a kid, you know, I like to, I like to read voracious reader always from a kid, and, and uh, you know, subscribed to a lot of periodicals, read a lot of books, and. Uh, so uh, I had, uh, you know, I suppose you call them pretensions uh, to be an intellectual, uh, you know, intellectual pretensions that I wanted to try to live up to and realize, you know. So I somehow got myself into Brandeis. I had to take a bunch of courses and I had to get myself so I could actually participate as a student, which was not easy. I, I found I couldn't really write a paragraph when I, I had not, you know, I'd been four years in Vietnam and was and was not a student prior to that. I mean, I was a terrible high school student, very rebellious for a variety of reasons, extremely, you know, profoundly rebellious, and almost to a, a point that I can't imagine raising a kid like me. You know, having raised four sons myself, I think, God, I would have driven myself crazy, or I would have killed myself. <laughs> you know, the father would have killed the son, and the son would have driven father crazy. In any event, it wouldn't have been a happy situation. But I put what I put my father through was brutal. Anyway, so he but he paid for me to go to Brandeis, and he was very very happy that I went. So uh, the tuition was six thousand dollars, and 
managed to live. I had a job and and uh, I managed to pay my own, uh, you know, maintenance. You know, so anyway, so when I got to Brandeis, uh, you know, I was I had to really mesh myself and study and and uh, because I was not effective, you know, I couldn't. I wasn't like a kid that just got through a decent high school uh, with. Uh, you know, and as well, I, I, I had a lot of trouble relaxing. I couldn't. You know, your brain doesn't work well when you're when you're stressed. It doesn't just doesn't function as well as it should. And so, I very luckily, fortunately, Brandeis at that time was filled with a lot of. You know, so this is 1968. Uh, it was filled with. Uh, Eastern European intellectuals who had gone through God only knows what kind of horrors. I mean, they dominated the uh, the campus life. Uh, people who had been uh, through pogroms and all sorts of tr- trouble in their native country. Uh, Philip Robb was uh, on the faculty. He was a, a literary fellow. And there was a bunch of other people who uh, had had terrible trouble in the uh, Second World War, and were real, real, genuine intellectuals. I mean, life of the mind was what they were doing, and nothing else. And uh, so, they. I think one of them, a guy named Leon Edel, I had for an English teacher, and he said, "No, no, you, you just came back from Vietnam. Yeah, you, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. I, I think you're, you're probably going to be a college professor. Just you get a B. Uh, just relax and try to read this thing again. Make sure you it's calm down. You'll be fine." And so they were very patient, you know, great. And that kind of reassurance is so valuable. And it allowed me to stay there. And I, uh, and so for a couple of years, I didn't do anything but study, 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 try to get the basics of being able to, you know, read for content and be able to, you know, expand a theory on a paper, uh, you know, which is, it's a, it's a harder thing to do than you realize if you, if you can't do it and you try to, try to, if you haven't been trained to do it and you try to accrue that at 22, it's not that it's harder to do than you might think. Or at least it was hard for me. It'd probably be easier for you, but it was hard for me. So I, uh, but in the course of that, I was working and, uh, I was working in a Waltham hospital as a medic, which is something I was well trained to do. And, uh, uh, so they, but they quickly figured out that they didn't care what I would, uh, you know, I was not, uh, uh, shrinking violet, which, you know, uh, if I, Gave all the pre-op enemas I gave, I gave all, cleaned up after all the autopsies, I did uh, all the, a lot of the surgery preparation, and uh, I assisted at some other autopsies, but, uh, uh, and it was quite, you know, it, it, when I think about it now, I think, God, am I, anyway, I, I, uh, I was trying to write a paper, an ontology paper, and I couldn't do it, I mean, it came back from work at 11 o'clock at night, it was, and I tried to sit down and write this ontology paper. My brother was visiting me. I said, Gee, this just is not coming. You know, I just can't figure this out. And he said, you can't. You're going to quit that job. You can't do that kind of thing and then sit down and write a paper on ontology. It just doesn't make any sense. You can't. Ultimately, I did quit the job. And I started to think about other things. I had started to think about, I miss a fellowship of the other veterans very much. I had no contemporaries at, uh, at uh, Brandeis University. I had, they were plenty of nice people there, nice professors and gracious students, but nobody was anything like me and there was no one I could talk to and I missed a great deal. Uh, the fellowship of soldiers, you know, of guys my age who had been through my experience. So I found a group in 
Cambridge that was doing discharge surveys or discharge improvements and counseling for people who wanted to get conscientious observer status. By this time, I had thought I had thought a lot about the fellows I'd helped and about the war itself, and I thought it was a, an extremely wasteful thing, <clears throat> and it was uh, extremely unfortunate for the guys who were hurt. And so I was working there, and the guy Jerry Grossman was a fellow who was a liberal line. He was a Democratic National Committee man, and he was giving some support to this organization that was working with these veterans. We had a newspaper out at Fort Devens in the air, and that newspaper was a daily, in fact, a daily paper that reported on who was going to where and what was going on in Vietnam and what was going on on the base. And uh, it wasn't daily every day, but when it came out, it was for that day. And it came out oh, two or three times a week, sometimes every day for a few days. And uh, it was just it was a drop, you know, some guys would drop around the base. And, and so I started talking to those fellows and becoming, you know, my attitudes about the war were being shaped by other experiences. And so then a fellow came, Grossman asked me and another couple of guys to meet John Kerry, who wanted to start a chapter of Vietnam Veterans Against the War in Massachusetts, where he'd been working in New York for a year or so. And we said, uh, we said uh, no thanks, we really don't want to meet him. But Grossman said, he said, well, I'll buy you lunch. So he said, yeah, okay, well, we'd love to meet him. You know, under that. <laughs> Free food. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so we did meet him, and we were very impressed with him. I got to say, you know, he was clearly uh, very, very focused. He was not a frivolous guy. He wasn't there to make friends. He wasn't there to influence our opinions. He wasn't there to do anything but be effective in opposition to the war. And he was so so adult and so uh, you know, single-minded that uh, we, we were, uh, you know, I was impressed and we, we signed up immediately. And uh, we, we, we decided that what we try to do is participate in a so this was like January. And so they said, well, after we signed up, we started talking to them and they went, we sent a guy to New York for their meetings and, and they wanted, they said, well, we should do something uh, anti-war protest in DC. We decided that was what we wanted to do in April. So this is April, 1970, this might be April 71. So we, uh, we, uh, helped, uh, organize, a uh, Massachusetts contingent to go to Washington to protest the war in a demonstration called Dewey Canyon 3. Dewey Can there were two Dewey Canyon operations in Vietnam and Cambodia, and they were secret operations that uh, went into Cambodia and did other various things. We discovered these things because veterans who would participate in them came into our office and talked about them. So they called it Dewey Canyon 3. It was very e it was, you know, we had some guys who had come by our office and we contacted them and let them know that this demonstrator invited them, you know, said we'd make a reservation, you know, the bus reservations and so on for them, or hire a bus or do whatever, Fig figure out their transportation and we told them what to bring and so on if they wanted to go. And we also put an advertisement in the paper in the, one of the underground papers with uh, the Phoenix, the real paper, I think, probably both. And we put it just a little thing, Operation Dewey Canyon 3, call this number and it was reversed you know so it was black with uh, white uh, letters and it, so it stood out and it was just that's all it was and we got hundreds of calls and uh then uh so we got enough calls so i got i i we ordered three buses i think and uh 
and a train. <laughs> I ordered a train. Well, I canceled the train because we didn't have that kind of response. But I think we did send three buses, two or three buses, full of guys to uh, Washington. And then, of course, a lot of fellows drove. I drove myself. So uh, uh, we had raised money to pay for that. And so it was a, we spent four or five days in Washington speaking with the Congress people and having some rallies uh, around the Capitol uh, expressing our views. And so journalists came to interview us and we went to the Capitol and talked to some to our Congress people and uh, it was very. We felt it was effective, and we it was uh, felt it was good work. And that, uh, and the more time I spent around these veterans, the more I was convinced that their sacrifices had been uh, were uh, not. Uh, you know that they had that there's that there's a great there's inequality in sacrifice uh, around war. I suppose that's always the case, but that. That this inequality was so great for Vietnam that that the inequality of sacrifice, the amount of sacrifice that certain people had to make, and and where others felt no discomfort at all and felt no no responsibility for the sacrifice that the veteran had made, was so great that it was uh, you know became horrible to me. So so I started to think more and more about it, and uh, and I the justification for it. Uh, escaped me. I mean, I I know that uh, the official justification was that we were fighting communism, but my, you know, my impression was that uh, Vietnamese people had, uh, you know, they barely had AK-47s. They had, you know, they had antiquated weapons, and they were six thousand miles away with no means of transportation. Why we had to go to fight them? Uh, was not justified. I didn't feel it was justified at all. And so those sacrifices, those guys, all those guys that I lugged around, all those guys that been in Vietnam veterans against the war who were, you know, paraplegic, quadriplegic, had burns, had psychic and physical injuries, were, I felt that that was just wasted. And, uh, and it was a hard uh, thing to come to terms with. It was a, it's a bitter notion and a disillusionment is, uh, on that level can be painful. So I, you know, uh, lived that for several years. And I think that sort of trying to figure out what that meant and trying to figure out how that, try, you know, I actually studied philosophy to try to figure out uh, the difference between good and bad, which is sounds a little stupid, but uh, I, I started out trying to figure out uh, uh, it doesn't about, sound stupid. I mean, that's what philosophy is supposed to be, uh, classical, right? Well, I mean, good and bad, you know, it seems a little simple. Not stupid, stupid is maybe the wrong word, but good and bad, you know, you think it's an eight. You know that people know that, but I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know, and it seemed to me it was worth, uh, you know, inquiry. You know, it was, uh, it was uh, appropriate. So I started thinking about, uh, you know, I was raised Catholic, so I sinned and responsibility and guilt these things are are important notions in Catholicism as they are in philosophy and uh, so I sort of wanted to figure out what you know something about ontology and then I wanted to had a study in virtue I wanted to study virtue a bit because I thought that's and and then and I also wanted to, I was having inquiry in sin I had a interest in in discerning 
more about what sin and guilt and responsibility were and how they affected you and how you how you assigned them to yourself or didn't. So I ended up with... Uh, uh, I studied some uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who, uh, you know, was a modern philosopher, contemporary philosopher, was a... Uh, Interesting guy and uh, Protestant theologian, really. And, and he wrote a book called uh, "Moral Man and His Immoral Communities," and uh, so it, it shaped my thinking a bit about uh, about this. And 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 I I studied, you know, so I I studied other philosophers and. Uh, and uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't, what I learned, I don't, I learned how to, how to, I learned that there was a lot of useful questions. I didn't, I didn't learn any answers. <laughs> At least I don't think I have any answers. And, but, you know, I, 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 I think I was blessed. You know, I, I needed to have four years to think about the four years or six years or seven, eight years that had preceded uh, my experience of Brandeis, I needed to think very deeply and I needed plenty of time to think and plenty of space to think and I needed some guidance. And Brandeis gave those things to me for four years and uh, it really changed the direction of my life in a very, very uh, profound and interesting way. I'm extremely grateful for the uh, philosophy department there and for the the people who helped me because uh you know, perspective is all you really have. You, 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 it changes everything, and and uh, to be able to ask these questions and deal with this stuff and be able to, I think, in a way, it enabled me to rebel against the war in Vietnam, to to, to oppose it, you know, to dissent, and uh, to dissent with logic, you know, to dissent. Uh, not just emotional that this is wrong, but uh, why it's wrong, how it's wrong, and, and uh, what my responsibility was. And uh, so that's a liberating thing. You know, that's a, that's the only thing that uh, liberates you, I think, is uh, being able to think your way out of problems. And I was uh, pretty deeply in a problem, and uh, they helped me. They helped me. And so uh, I became so... Involved in this type of thought that I actually I didn't I went on a I imposed silence on myself. I was always interested in religion and interested in the Jesuit training and so on. I know that they at one time I don't think they do it anymore. They had a two years of silence and meditation was assigned to each Jesuit academic, and I decided. Uh, well, I, I actually looked around at Brandeis. I wasn't really talking to anybody. I was just studying, and, uh, you know, I would talk, and I wanted to order a hamburger, but that was about it. So I decided I wasn't going to talk at all. So I, I sent, didn't talk for a, a week or so, and I found it surprisingly easy and liberating, actually, that I wasn't expecting myself to answer a question. I, I was having trouble figuring out what I thought about things, you know, what I what my I wanted to. I wanted to escape superficial interactions, and so uh, that week was pretty good. I thought, "Oh, well, that worked pretty well." So then, then I tried for a month. So, 
and I stretched it beyond about the 40 days, but I, and it was quite easy. Uh, it was easier than you could imagine. Uh, not speaking to anyone for 40 days was painless and easy, but I developed such a profoundly active internal conversation that I actually became afraid that I might never, <laughs> that I might never talk to anybody again if I didn't break the the uh, spell of this thing because uh, I was making a lot of progress, you know. <laughs> Sounds funny now, but I, so it, but I was it just goes to show how you know once you you know you get a little. Uh, a grip on something and it helps you, helps you pull yourself up. That grip becomes tighter and tighter. You can hang on to that like, like, uh, you know, a lifeline and, uh, and, uh, everything else becomes obscured by that, you know. So that's what happened. And I found it very, you know, I found it very hard actually to enter into conversations. I mean, for the first week, I was, I had to shut my brain off and just respond, you know. And, try to talk about sports or something. You know what I mean? To rejoin uh, civil society. 